Hey, Changemaker, it's Julia Wicklander here. Welcome to this eye-opening episode with a champion who speaks truth to power, literally. Beatrice Finn is the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN. In 2017, she accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the campaign coalition that works to prohibit and eliminate nuclear weapons. Beatrice has led the campaign since 2014 and has worked to mobilize civil society throughout the development of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that entered into force on January 22, 2021. She is an expert on weapons law, humanitarian law, civil society engagement in diplomacy, as well as on the gender perspective on disarmament work. Beatrice Finn holds a master's degree in law from the University College London and a bachelor's degree in international relations from Stockholm University. Beatrice Finn is also the executive producer of the film The Day the World Changed, the first ever interactive virtual reality memorial experience to pay tribute to those affected directly by nuclear warfare spanning back to 1945. In this conversation, we talk about the current situation with nuclear threats, Putin's war in Ukraine, and why nuclear disarmament is so important. We talk about how we can all be a part of creating change on an issue that can seem so much bigger than ourselves, and the progress that is being made for a world free from nuclear weapons. We also talk about the stress and anxiety that comes with thinking about war, conflict, and the ever-present threat of nuclear weapons. And Beatrice shares her best advice with us as well as how she started working against nuclear weapons in the first place. This is an episode that I recommend you listen to in its entirety. Beatrice is full of wisdom and inspiration for us to do more for a peaceful and just world. Thank you for being here. Hi, Beatrice. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, on the Hey Change Baker podcast um, by Girls Globe. And um, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast um, because you are an advocate and you're an expert in disarmament. Um, and it's something that we at Girls Globe haven't had a lot of focus on. And it's definitely something that we want to learn more about. And um, I think you're the per- perfect person um, to have on our podcast uh, and have a conversation with. Um, and you have an extensive background within weapons law and humanitarian law. Um, so what actually sparked the journey to work with disarmament for you? Why, why nuclear weapons and disarmament? Thank you so much, Julia, for having me. It's uh, it's really nice to be here and uh, to talk about these issues because I think it's such a important conversations to have right now when the world is looking the way it is, and um, I feel like we all are pretty intimidated about the way things are going and feeling a little bit overwhelmed at times. So I think we have to talk amongst each other about how we can fix some of these massive problems we're facing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, to be honest, I wasn't really interested in nuclear weapons at all when I started uh, this work. Um, I thought it was a very outdated, old-fashioned uh, kind of issue. I studied international relations. I've always been very interested in, in sort of uh, political science, international relations. I grew up in an area um, outside Gothenburg in Sweden with a lot of immigrants, for example, um, and you know, just remember very strongly from the Balkan war, for example, suddenly I have all these new classmates coming from all over the world, um, coming from the, the Balkans, uh, but also from Chile, from Iran, from Somalia, from all of these places where different conflict or different circumstances have made them had to leave their homes um, and come or their parents had to leave their homes and, and come to Sweden. So I think that even like, as a Swede, like from a small country up north who hasn't suffered from any wars uh, for a very long time, you kind of realizing that I kind of realized early on that uh, everything is very connected and everything that's happening around the world has an impact on everyone uh, at the same time. So just kind of had a strong interest in, in these issues. So wanted to study human rights. I was very uh, 
I was really like uh, impressed by the United Nations and the idea of working with these kind of big issues. Uh, so yeah, I started studying at Stockholm University um, international relations. Uh, we did a little bit of studying about kind of nuclear deterrence theories, but never nobody really talked about nuclear weapons. But I got an internship with a peace organization called uh, International Women's uh, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and they offered me a paid internship in Geneva, uh, which was to deal with like disarmament issues and in particular nuclear weapons. And I remember thinking, oh, that's lame. That's really boring. Um, nuclear weapons is, just feels like a really outdated issue. Do, do they even exist anymore? Uh, this was around 2006 uh, when I got this. And then took a chance anyway, because I wanted to go to Geneva. I wanted to see the UN. I wanted to work for these things. It was a paid internship. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it anyway. Maybe I can swap to some of the more interesting issues later. And got completely uh, sucked into this issue. Um, I think when I, once I started learning more about nuclear weapons, uh, to me, it was really, it became clear that it was really about all those things that I was really passionate about, justice, equality, uh, international law, uh, protection of civilians. Mm. It was really, you know, this is like the kind of such an anomaly, uh, like bizarre kind of exception under international law. Uh, we talk about protecting civilians. We talk about like, well, we don't want to use nuclear, uh, chemical weapons or biological weapons, but nuclear weapons are completely fine. Like a country like France, for example, talks about champion uh, protection of civilians, but totally fine to use weapons of mass destruction to wipe out civilians. Um, it's like a complete disconnect. Uh, and it's also a very, you know, we had written into the international legal system that five country, countries was kind of allowed to have these weapons and others weren't, which is like a, the South African government calls it nuclear apartheid. Oh, wow. uh, so it's like, it was like so full of inconsistencies, uh, unfairness, like illogical reasoning behind it that I just really, uh, to me, it was like a symbol of all the things that are wrong in mm. the world. Mm. Uh, and I just got completely sucked into it. So it wasn't as boring and old fashioned as I thought. It's actually really current. And now, you know, we're seeing unfortunately like that a lot of more people are discovering this yeah that's so interesting Beatrice and I think uh, I mean a lot of my friends who who lived here as well during the 90s and um you know here in Sweden where mm. I live now really also experienced you know the the changes here um mm. but for me I mean I grew up actually in Egypt Pakistan and India and mm. so I lived in Pakistan in the 90s and I don't think a lot of um people really understood but I actually had when I was 11 12 years old I actually had a fear of nuclear weapons because mm -hmm. I saw on the news how Pakistan and India was really sort of racing in the proliferation um, and I didn't really understand it you know mm. I was so young but I think that for me it has lived you know in the back of my head as some mm. sort of fear that still is you know urgent and um, still here um, mm. So in 2017, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and you um, had the opportunity to, you know, accept that prize. Um, and it was really for, you know, working towards the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the launch of that treaty actually means and, and sort of what that prize um, meant for, for ICANN, if it has mm. had you know, any difference for the efforts that you're mm. you're doing? Yeah, well, the treaty is really about correcting that injustice uh, that we saw, you know, this idea that, you know, war crimes are banned under international law, uh, use of chemical weapons is banned under international law, biological weapons, use of landmines or cluster munitions, these smaller bombs that mm. have indiscriminate impact on civilians are banned, but somehow nuclear weapons were just like, did not ban them straightforwardly. It was like sort of like, yeah, you can't have them if you're not one of these big five countries, but like it's kind of okay. And some countries can be part of like using them, but not really. Mm. So what we really tried to do with this treaty was to kind of close the legal gap on uh, under international law around nuclear weapons and make sure that it's, um, there's a clear rule that, you know, it's the same for everyone. It should not be that some countries are allowed to have them and some aren't. But also to kind of promote this idea that these are bad weapons. Mm. They are not supposed to be 
attractive or things that we aspire to have or status symbols. Like these are actually really horrific weapons of mass destruction, just like chemical and biological weapons, mm -hmm. and nobody should have them. So we worked with a group of governments, uh, with international organizations like the United Nations, the International Committee of the Red Cross, for example, as well, uh, to really promote this idea of prohibiting nuclear weapons and have a treaty that mimics the bans on chemical and biological weapons um, based on international humanitarian law that in order to protect civilians, we have to ban weapons that have um, excessive impact on civilians, for example, if they used or too long-term impact, for example. So we, yes, yeah, so we worked, uh, you know, for several years to push, 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 uh, and in 2017, finally, governments negotiated this treaty. Over 120 governments were part of the negotiations, adopting the treaty at the UN General Assembly, um, and then started to sign and ratify. And that's when we were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, both for the treaty and the work that we've done to get this treaty, but also for our work to kind of raise awareness of the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons. And I think that's also a really key part of the, the work that we do is that uh, nuclear weapons are seen so often as a theoretical kind of game theory tool. Um, I've seen that now just this last few weeks in media when we talked about Putin's nuclear threats. Media will report on it as like, well, how would that influence the military strategy of Ukraine? And not what would happen to the hundreds of thousands of people that would die and what would happen to the country and how would we deal with that? So it's like a very, the, the way we talk about nuclear weapons is so hypothetical and speculative in terms of military strategy and mm. sort of strategic stability and all these very sterile concepts that means nothing to people and never about what they actually do to people and yeah. how they wipe out whole cities. So the part of our work was also that we were willing to the peace prize for was to sort of kind of reframe it as a humanitarian issue. Look at like what happens when you use them, what happens to people, what happens to our societies, mm -hmm. what do the emergency responders like the ICRC, the Red Cross, for example, or the UN, what would they do? What would the doctors do? What would the nurses do mm. uh, if these weapons are used? So that was also part of the, the reason for, for getting the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and that was, of course, an incredible experience. Mm. Um, you know, being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize is like, you know, it's such an incredible recognition of the work. It gives us a, a massive platform, but also really um, kind of gives you a sort of a stamp of approval of something, that this is a serious thing, this is something that's worth um, and particularly on the wish of nuclear weapons, where it's been very, until now this year, of course, you know, it's not been talked about very much. It's yeah. been kind of an ignored big issue. Um, so it was just incredibly important to, to, to sort of see how the Nobel Peace Prize Committee kind of recognized that, yes, you did something big. It might have not gotten a lot of like media coverage or attention, but it's, it was something big and something important. Mm. Um, so that, you know, it, it helped us enormously. First of all, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and, you know, working on nuclear weapons is not a lot of glamour and fun mm. in that way. So it was incredible mm. to, to get that recognition, to go to Oslo, to be a part of these things. Mm. I mean, I remember there was a few moments in Oslo that was just so surreal. Like, for example, signing the guest book and just flipping through the pages and seeing people like, Nelson Mandela, Barack Obama, Malala, Martin Luther King. I mean, it's just like mm. it was completely overwhelming um, yeah. to that, you know, ICANN was a part of that group mm. of really mm. remarkable people. Um, but I think also what was really great and one of the things that I really enjoy the most is that ICANN is really not um, Martin Luther King Barack Obama type, right? Like it's just regular people and we're a huge amount of people and we're over 600 organizations around the world. Mm -hmm. And none of us are particularly, uh, we're not heads of states, right? Or we're not like these famous celebrities or anything like that. It's just regular people doing stuff, mm -hmm. um, working together. And I think that was also really something that I want to share with people because I think the people Sometimes, you know, we're very obsessed with celebrities in our culture. And sometimes people kind of think that, oh, you, only if you're a really high level person or like some kind of, you know, have a 
position high up in, in can you do something? Mm. Uh, or if you're very famous, you can do something. But that's really not true. And I think that, you know, showing that it was just this group of people uh, with quite little resources, uh, not a massive platform, and they did something really big and it was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. Uh, and it kind of can serve as inspiration for people that, you know, anyone can do something. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. Because I sort of see you like in my head I was thinking about your work and I, I was thinking that you know you're running around in the halls trying to grab people at the UN and like having informal talks um, in the corridors um, but uh, I mean since it, it was I think a hundred was it at like 120 organizations that was behind the treaty but since then 68 countries have ratified the treaty and 91 states have signed on. Can you actually explain? And then in September now, seven more countries actually signed on. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain sort of what that means? Like the differences between being behind, uh, ratifying and signing on to, uh, like what are those different, you mm -hmm. know, what meanings of, of the treaty, like of being behind the treaty? Yeah, I mean the treaty. The treaties, international law is, is, has several different steps in the process. Um, so first you kind of negotiate the text mm. uh, and it's like a negotiating conference. They sit in debate in little small groups, draft, amend, changes, fights. It's yeah. all very uh, exciting if you're an international law nerd like I am and for <laughs> regular people, maybe not so excited, very bureaucratic. Yeah, it's like a Google Doc that you're working on together, like editing exactly. and exactly. crossing things out. Yeah, yeah. very fun. Um, <laughs> and... So what happened then is that you 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 finalize the text and you adopt the text. And this does not mean that you are part of the treaty. It just means that you kind of approve that this is the text that the treaty should have. Okay. And that's called adopting the treaty. And we had about 120 governments that participated and adopted the treaty. There were a lot of countries, including those with nuclear weapons, who boycotted the whole negotiation. They were not even yeah. part of the conversation because they did not want to be a part of this treaty at, in the mm. beginning. Mm. Um, so, but 120 countries were there, showed up, negotiated, and agreed to finalize the text. Mm. Um, then it opens for signature and, and ratification. Um, and so you join a treaty in kind of two steps in international law. First, you sign the treaty, and it can be done by uh, the head of state or head of government or the foreign minister, uh, for example. So they will just show up at the United Nations in this massive, like, book like original copy of the treaty and then they put the signature and it means that they support the treaty and they intend to kind of uh, make it into internet into law themselves uh, nationally but they haven't done it yet okay so it's like you're not formally bound to follow the rules of the treaty at that point mm -hmm. but there is still like a bit of a your you're not supposed to undermine the law it's not like you can sign this treaty and then start developing nuclear weapons and test nuclear weapons and use nuclear weapons because you can't go against the spirit of the treaty um, and the text at that point. So it kind of shows your indication that I will I will join this treaty, like are we working on it? But the actual uh, formal and the last step is called ratification. Mm. And that is sort of like the, the when you, you, you properly join the treaty and you bind yourself that this is now the law that I, I take on. Mm. And you ratify the treaty by... Um, submitting like a certificate or a, a document to the United Nations uh, confirming that your national laws are now in line with this international okay. law. Yeah. So for example, for a lot of our governments that are joining this treaty, they like go to their parliaments, adopt a new law that bans nuclear weapons nationally mm -hmm. uh, and bans all the different activities. And then they adopt that in the parliament and then the government kind of creates the certificate saying that, yes, we have the relevant law. Mm. And here's a certificate for that. And then you ratify the treaty. And that's when you are formally um, bound under international law to comply with this and continue to comply with this. So right now, so we had like 120 states that like agreed on the text, 91 that have signed it, 68 that have ratified it and submitted this like national legislation. Mm. 
Yeah, and I saw recently, thank you so much for just that explanation, because I think these documents can be really confusing for people. And it's very I think confusing. it's just really, really important that we understand the different steps. And I also uh, saw recently that I can had just shared on the, your Instagram, uh, just like a, a little picture with all the flags of the countries that have ratified. Um, and I think it's just so important to, you know, understand that we all as individuals have an impact because I mean we can also you know advocate in our own countries mm. um, to actually put pressure on on our governments to um, participate and you know take action towards you know the results that we want to see um, and our country Sweden uh, has not signed or ratified the treaty um, do you have any comment about that yeah, I mean, Sweden was part of the negotiations, so mm -hmm. they contributed to negotiating the, the, um, the treaty and was part of this 120 countries that adopted the treaty, uh, but then decided not to join into it. It's, you know, to be honest, it's not anything that they have a problem with in the text. It's just the fact that NATO, of course, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, is part of a nuclear kind of sharing agreement and, and have... Uh, kind of rely on nuclear weapons for their security uh, and threatening to use nuclear weapons as a part of their security strategy. Mm. So Sweden was very pressured even before it decided to join NATO, which it now has done, uh, and it was very close to the United States, to the UK and France and these countries with nuclear weapons. And we know from leaked documents that the US, for example, pressured Sweden a lot, saying that we will punish you if you sign this treaty. Um, and this is quite an interesting thing, right? Because it's like Sweden has always been very, you know, open about saying we want nuclear disarmament. Mm. Uh, we are promoting nuclear, nuclear disarmament. And this is part of our security policy uh, strategy. But it has really shifted in the last few years, mm. uh, the Swedish position. And, you know, it's incredibly disappointing. We know that the Swedish people, through polls and all these things, they want nuclear disarmament, they want nuclear weapons to be banned, but the Swedish yeah. government has chosen to listen more to the United States and other nuclear weapon states than um, its own people in this yeah. question. And now, of course, when they're joining NATO, it's, you know, Sweden is actually saying publicly that nuclear weapons are a legitimate security tool. Mm. Uh, and Swedish soldiers would be part of using these weapons in collaboration with the nuclear yeah. states in NATO, um, which to me is really shocking because it means that Sweden is now going from being against nuclear weapons to actually saying that Swedish soldiers could be participating in mass murdering civilians one day yeah. if 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 NATO calls up and say this is what mm. we're going to do. Mm. Um, and it's and it's you know the the only reason that they're getting away with it is because again we have this we don't talk about nuclear weapons like that yeah we, like oh no it's just a security strategy like it's just about balance and like this kind of theory it's not about Swedish soldiers will participate in mass murdering civilians when you say it like that it's absolutely outrageous mm. and that's why they refuse to talk about this issue in yeah. those terms and they're trying to make it as abstract and disconnected from reality as possible mm. and it's very interesting i mean the changes that have happened in sweden and i think sweden I, i'm wondering how long like now it just feels like the reputation is falling apart but mm. i do think that um i mean for a long time sweden has lived on a reputation that hasn't been entirely accurate but mm. um just lived on this reputation of uh, global solidarity on you know development aid being in the forefront of human rights um for so long but mm. uh, recent years have just showed the many cracks in, yeah. in the country. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it's something that the whole kind of Western world is facing right now. Um, because we've always had an image, and it was probably a deception from the beginning, right? And like maybe I never thought it and I never saw the reality uh, when I was younger, and now discovering that you know, actually the Western world is is deeply problematic in many ways uh, when it comes to economic justice, when it comes to things like climate change, when it comes to things like nuclear weapons. Yeah. So it's been very well for like European countries to say that we are champions of human rights, champions on democracy issues, aid and development. 
But I think the massive challenges that we're facing today, mm. things like climate change, things like nuclear weapons, for example, we're the baddies. Like we're, yeah. we're the bad ones. And the global mm. south is not the ones yeah. that are the problem here. Mm. So, and I think there's a little bit of a reckoning needed. Um, and I think in particularly now that we see extremely worrying tendencies in Sweden, in Italy, in the US, in the UK, like this sort of neo-fascism kind of growing, you know, very populism, a new, very destructive nationalism kind of coming up um, that is deeply worrying, I think. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, yeah, I just I just think that the, the Western world needs to take a really close look at itself uh, yeah. in terms of um, how, how we're behaving on the international arena, what values we are promoting. Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying that they were better before. I mean, colonialism and all of that, like it was terrible. Um, but there's been this kind of deceptive idea that we are somehow the good ones yeah. on the international arena, where, of course, I think it's coming to the surface now. And in particular with some of these challenges that, no, actually, we are the main problem. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I think, I mean, as you say, the reckon, reckoning is really needed. Mm. But at the same time, when you're working with these issues and you have, you know, the reckoning with you all the time and, you mm. know, that do you sort of yourself, because I just remember sort of when, when I mean, the war in Ukraine started, um, there was like the surge of like um, across Europe, you know, people were wanting to buy these pills against sort of a nuclear disaster and, you know, all of these different things that um, they would want to do to pre- protect themselves. Um, mm. Do you, do you, like, do you live with, with sort of that constant anxiety or fear of, of a nuclear disaster? Like having, like working with these issues all the time, um, how do you yourself take care of, your mental health and mm. your sort of just sanity? Well, <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, I mean, I think this year has been very difficult. Yeah. Uh, and of course, like we have worked a lot on trying to articulate what happens when nuclear weapons are being used and always trying to put that, like, you know, when we do meetings with government officials or with political figures, I like to start the meetings by describing what happens when a nuclear weapons is used, because I think that it centers the conversation around people and and how we can prevent that from happening. Mm. But I found myself this year, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it became harder and harder to do that because it's like, it's almost too real. Yeah. Uh, And even for me, who's worked on this for, for, for many, many years now, when I've said these things, I've, like, did I really believe that it would happen? Like, no, mm. of course not. Like, because it's mm. too unimaginable, right? Like, it's the same thing as with climate change. Like, we can't actually grasp what is about to happening or what it is that we're about to do. Um, and that's what's really, you know, the most challenging things with working with these massive problems is that it is impossible mm. to actually grasp the the kind of consequences uh, um, of these massive problems. Um, but I've definitely felt very much like so much more anxiety, worry. Um, I mean, you and I are talking right now just as Putin has been making more threats uh, and much more aggressive threats. Um, I feel like people are almost, I mean, people are very, very worried again right now because the the threats are being more aggressive and more explicit um, than they were in February. But at the same time, like it's becoming almost normalized the same time. Yeah, 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 he's just bluffing, right? Mm. Uh, And I think it's a very natural and human instinct because you cannot go around and be so terrified of the world ending anytime mm. right like yeah. it's really hard for your brain to do that so uh, it's I think you know when we get you know sometimes when I hear something or this pipeline now that has been you know sabotaged and you just I get this like almost like you know in your stomach just like like we might right it might happen like it might escalate um and I think it's really important that we don't just kind of shove that away and try to ignore it but that we kind of translate that into like doing something about it and I think that the same thing that I feel about climate change like when you start thinking about who what actually is going to happen mm. if we continue like this it becomes so overwhelming it's so much more comfortable 
to just like shut it down and like mm. not think about it. But you know, it will still be there under the, like under everything anyway. So I think we have to just acknowledge it. Like it is terrifying, mm. and no, I can't fix it. Um, and I think that's something that I struggle with very much. Like not feeling personally responsible for Putin's nuclear threats, yeah. which sounds really bizarre when I say it out loud, <laughs> but somehow like when I hear mm. these threats, I feel like, oh, I failed. Mm. And like, which is like trying to learn to not um, take it personally or like a failure, like these are structures. And I think very much the same thing on climate change. Like sometimes when I get this huge anxiety, like moments on climate change, I tend to think of myself like, oh, I'm so bad, right? Like I haven't recycled enough for, I live a lifestyle. Like, and it's like, it's kind of in a way, the way that the people in power want you to feel. Like we mm. take responsibility for that, for this. And it's mm. not our response. Like we haven't made this. Yeah, There are companies and the military and a whole military industrial complex, for example, that feeds off of, you know, more threats and violence and mm. war, you know, to make a profit. And the same thing as the fossil fuel industry fuels you know plastic and consumption and stuff mm. um they are the problem mm. so i think that in order to kind of stay sane i think we have to like i'm trying to sort of like i do what i can right uh, i call out the problems i put the focus on where the real problems are um the, the business industries for example behind these things uh the leaders that keep perpetrating it and the people in decision making power mm. um but then also kind of trying to give myself a bit of a, a, a break from feeling too much responsibility. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of people talked about sort of self-care and thing and just finding joy in this work anyway. Mm. Um, and I just feel like, you know, we never know what will work or what will not work. Mm. So we can only continue and kind of try to uh, do as much as we can and feel like, well, whatever happens. Like even if climate change is going to like end the world or nuclear war is going to end the world, I want to know that I did something, right? And I tried and I was sort of the solutions rather than the problems. And mm. that that will have to be enough mm. in some ways and trying to encourage other people to feel the same way. Like we're doing everything and we knew, because we do know that, you know, we can change things ourselves, right? So we have to do it together. So we can have to figure out how to do this in a long-term way. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with you so much. And I think that's sort of the, the cornerstone of, of Girls Globe and the organization that we're working with is really because to, to kick out hopelessness because hopelessness mm. is really the, the threat to, you know, things just status quo, just remaining at it as it is and everything mm. that's going on as it is and nothing changing. And I think that is just, you know, when you feel like you're you don't have the power and you feel hopeless, then you close your eyes to the yeah. issues that are going on and you just live your life as usual without, mm -hmm. you know, but it's still, you know, lurking in the background. Yeah. And I, and I think this really, you know, one of my strategies for also like having the kind of an energy to keep going, even though it feels very hopeless is to like, my job is not to fix this. My job is to make it as hard for them to get away with it as possible. Mm. Like to just kind of constantly up the, kind of stigma around it make it a little bit difficult because the more difficult it is for them to do the bad things mm. you know the sooner they will swap to doing the good things instead yeah. um so i think we have to see each other not as in black and white like you either win or you lose it's like always raising the bar for the baddies to mm. do the wrong thing right like and just yeah. constantly putting a little bit more of obstacles and blockages and hoops that they have to jump through in order to continue to do the bad stuff whether that is through social norms and pressure and stigma through being country after country that just makes it a little bit more challenging for the nuclear weapon states to do or through mm. lawsuits or through these things um really like the more i feel like the people who defend nuclear weapons they they get more and more annoyed with us Mm. that is the sign that we're it's working right like we're making it difficult for them and that's all we can do we can't change their mind i can't force them to get rid of it but the more we just put obstacles in, in the way of them the better mm. right mm. yeah i i really like that and i think that for you know 
people who are listening who, who you know, aren't working with these issues. Um, I, I just also want to encourage that, you know, you said, I think 600 organizations are linked to ICANN. And I, I know organizations here where I live that are working to advocate nat- nationally as well. Mm. So I think that ju- just finding sort of finding people who mm. you know have knowledge to follow, you know, whether it is, you know, sharing things on social media or joining a pl- protest or mm. just, you know, uh, daring to talk about these things with your family. I think there are, um, yeah, many things that an individual can do to mm. sort of feel that they are taking action rather than mm. ignoring the issues. Um, and I think, I mean, I think that your story and so many other stories will inspire people Mm. to feel that you know things can be done and we are actually you know things are progressing and and despite um the the you know russia's threats right now seven new countries signed on this year and you know you're making progress and i think that that is the hope and those are the stories that we need to share um you know absolutely and i think that the way that we consume news today is very much driven by social media and we know from research and facts and um that negative news gets disproportionate amount of reactions and attentions yeah so that is what's dominating our news coverage and sometimes i feel like which is, in fact, a whole different podcast episode to talk about big tech and its impact on our... Absolutely, you know, right? Because it's like it, it yeah. kind of brainwashes us to think that things are worse than they are. And I'm not saying that things aren't bad when it things like climate change, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But of course, we also have to recognize that, you know, this is not the first country that's been invaded or mm-hmm. that goes to war. Right? It, it's something that, especially for us in Europe, it's like it's very close and people are like, this is the first time there's been war in Europe mm. since World War II. I'm like, well, did you forget about the Balkans? Like that yeah. was also, uh, we had a genocide in Europe in the 90s. Like, let's not forget about things. So I think that we have a tendency to also, and, and like again, statistics have shown as well that you need five positive things to like weigh the, the emotional impact of one negative thing. Yeah, I think I've heard it's 10, but yeah. Uh, yeah, like it, yeah. It's, it's, it's like really, really disproportionate. Mm. Right? So, mm. and I can notice that like just on social media, like I write a critical tweet about something that, you know, Putin is doing on Vanderbilt Corpus and immediately gets a lot of retweets and engagement and people share it. Mm. Um, I write about a country that ratifies the treaty, which is a massive thing, right? Like it's a really a country that like, you know, makes a law that nuclear weapons is prohibited forever, right? And they are not falling into the trap that Sweden is doing right now, of like, oh, we're scared, so we need nuclear weapons. They are actually taking the opposite, you know, conclusion out of the the war, um, and it's like barely anyone notice. Mm. So, so it's like, I think we have to remember that what we're seeing constantly might not always be the truth yeah. of what's actually happening. Because you know, sometimes I feel like, especially when I look at Twitter, like the whole world is collapsing, and then I like look out of my window and I'm like living a very nice life actually and you know people are nice and friendly and people are very helpful if you need it like I just feel like it's, it's sort of like a clash of like what, what is reality and what is actually you know we think we're living in some kind of scenario where people are really violent and awful and doing ter- terrible things and of course that does happen mm. but the majority of people are doing the right things and trying to do better things and want to be part of solution and want to help others. And we have to figure out how to elevate that a little bit more and to kind of recognize that and not, you know, I, I had a meeting a few weeks ago where, for example, the pandemic, you know, the, the pandemic, we were talking so much about how, oh, it's so bad, people are being so selfish and, the, you know, just, just like a very negative framing where actually my experience of the pandemic was a huge outpour of empathy, mm. collaboration. People were really, you know, you know, especially in those first weeks. I mean, we in Sweden, and it was maybe a little bit different, but here in Switzerland, we had a lockdown. People were putting up notes with their neighbors. Can I help you? Is there anyone who's too scared to go out? I can go and shop for you. Like, if mm. any like old person needs to walk their dog, I can take the dogs out. And, mm. you know, people were really helpful. I know in the beginning, if people got sick and got COVID, for example, they were... You know, every friend will be like, I'll, I'll drop things off outside your home. I'll entertain you on Zoom. Mm. Like there was like a huge outpouring support. And then also we came together to develop vaccines mm. super fast. Mm. And like there was a massive coordination 
And yes, of course, there's flaws that we didn't get them to developing countries on time and yada yada. But it was also a remarkable achievement for the world to move that fast. But that's not the impression we have on the pandemic, right? Like we we have a very negative framing around that. We complain about the uh, different the um, false information that was spreading and and all these things. And I think we for, really forget to. It's like we take the good stuff for granted. Yeah. And that's when we are really not valuing it enough. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you, and I I agree. I think being able to filter and focus on the positive and even when it, it we are you know living perhaps in some of the darkest times mm. and also just I think to reiterate what you were saying about you know what we are the input that we have through social media and so on it is it is filtered for us mm. <laughs> in a way that is not always positive in most cases not positive um, mm. so just to have that awareness of, of the information that you're taking in mm. um, and being critical of of what is you know what your what the knowledge that you have and mm. where did you get it from and and also just what you're aware of I mean the war in, in I mean the Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been happening but simultaneously we've had you know Myanmar and Ethiopia and Yemen and you know things going on across the world that are not getting any or you know enough attention at all so mm. I think you know it's the just this imbalance of who has the power to affect your mind and <laughs> the information yeah. that yeah. you're getting um so just that awareness is really helpful and then to to start focusing on the positive and I believe that we can do that through through you know collaborating through joining an organization or through you know finding people mm. who just you know some like-minded people that can support you um mm. I think for me that has been extra important right now um so that you can so that you can get the fuel that you need to be able to have those difficult conversations and yeah. you know meet the the difficult news as well yeah and I think really I mean I have a friend this is almost my perf- my, my best example or way of describing what I think people should be doing um, and I have a friend who's a personal trainer and, you know, there's been all these debates about what's the most effective training. Is it like the high intensity stuff? Is it low intensity? Like what's the best? And he's like, the best training that's most effective is the one that you like doing because that's the one that you're going with. The best training is when you do it for a long time and you keep consistent. Right. Yeah. So that, you know, whatever you like doing, if that's dancing, then that's, the, that's your, the, the best training for you. If that's weightlifting, that's the best training for you. If that's going for like you know, 10 hour runs, that's the best training for you. Mm. So, and I, I like to think about that in activism as well. Like people are very much like, well, you know, what, what should I do? And, and, and it's, there's no like one size fits all in this work. And the things that you like doing is probably what you should be doing if you want to change the world as well. You just add the kind of activism to it. So if you are an artist, you should use your art. If you are a musician, you should use that. If you are you know, at university, you should focus on, you know, gathering your university friends. If you are in a bank, you should think about the kind of divestment campaigns, for example, or trying to figure out what you're already doing and already good at and already enjoying doing and like add the kind of activism to that rather than trying to think that everyone needs to be Greta Thunberg and sit out and protest. Like if yeah. that's not what you want to do, then that's not going to be a, going to show up twice and then you're going to be like, oh, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, and that's when it's not going to be actually making a difference because you're not going to be able to sustain it for a long time. And I think that that's mm-hmm. like finding the things that makes you actually want to show up and finding the community, finding the friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my, you know, this movement, like one of the things that I love most is that I have so many friends in ICANN. Mm-hmm. And they are all over the place and I've made some beautiful friendships and we have fun. We also have it as a strategy to organize a lot of parties constantly, uh, which was a challenge in the pandemic, of course. But like um, it's because we have to have fun. If we're not having fun, then people aren't going to be showing up. Mm. And it's not about making it more shallow or more palatable or those things. Like it's very serious stuff to work on. But you know, we are just humans and humans wants to be together and socialize and, you know, feel good about stuff. And you do that with friends in those kind of, so finding friends and finding things that you already like doing and then like adding the activism, I think it's the best way to make sure that we're able to do it for a long time. And these are long-term fights that we're thinking about. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that if everyone does what they 
feel, you know, on their heart or that they enjoy, you know, we will complement each other and we'll exactly. come from different angles and we'll mm -hmm. be able to affect so much more yeah. than if everyone was doing one thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, I that's beautiful. And um, need, it needs to feed into the same kind of end goal. And I think that that's why how we, we were working, like this idea of banning nuclear weapons and trying to kind of formulate a broad or like a, it is a specific, this is a treaty, of course, but it is quite, it, it's, it doesn't dictate exactly what you need to do. And it allows people to, yeah, use art to come from it from a legal perspective or come from it from a TikTok, like, you know, oh, I want to do, you know, social media clips on this or mm -hmm. a doc, like, well, I'm coming this from a medical perspective and trying to encourage people to like find their own way. But then I think it's important to connect it all somehow because otherwise you feel lonely. Like if you're just doing it on your own, then, then you don't really see much difference. But if you can sort of feel like, I'm doing a small part of this big, big movement. And then you feel like you're part of something much, much bigger, uh, almost like an orchestra. You need to kind of play the same song, but everyone has a different like instrument and a different place in the orchestra and comes in at different moments and together it becomes really powerful. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And you definitely answered a few of my last questions about <laughs> sort of your advice to people. Um, but I think I would want to ask you one final thing. And if it's if there is one thing that we like each of us can do um, to actually, you know, impact our countries to join, to sign, to ratify the treaty um, against nuclear weapons, what one thing would you recommend? Uh, I think we need to say it out loud that I don't believe in nuclear. I don't believe nuclear weapons are good for security, and I believe we like my country should ban them. And to be able to 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 dare to do that because there's also very, especially now, right? Like there's like a kind of concerted effort to make everyone feel naive and unrealistic when you say that, and it means that a lot of people choose not to say it because they don't want to feel stupid or seem like they are somehow uh, soft, naive, soft hippies, right? Like mm. it's just kind of a masculine way of thinking that weapons are more rational. But nuclear weapons are completely irrational. Like it's it's absolutely like, it never makes sense to end the world, right? Like it's, it's really, really stupid. Um, and we need to call that out. And it only it's only allowed to continue uh, because people aren't questioning it. And I think that that's, you know, the best thing you can do in whichever way, like, and I think that that's where you can kind of find out where, like, where do I speak out? Where is my community? Who do I talk to? Like, is it on social media? Is it with my family? Is it in, at my workplace or wherever? Um, but find ways to actually like say, no, I, I don't believe that nuclear weapons create security and I want them to be banned. Like this yeah. is a bad weapon and they should not exist. Yeah. Um, and just by saying that we will create much more space for more people to say that. And we will create much more of like um, kind of fighting against that, you know, misunderstanding that this somehow is soft and naive. Um, and it's actually really realistic because relying on nuclear weapons means fully trusting someone like Putin or Kim Jong-un, right? That they will always behave rational, never like make a mistake, uh, that they will never go ahead and just hurt civilians, um, which is completely illogical. So, so many people who are like trying to be tough on Putin, but also completely- That's absurd. You know, allowing him to keep doing this. I mean, like it, it's really, really, it, it's completely counterintuitive. So, you know, I, I think we all need to help each other Mm. be able to stand up to that and say no I don't I don't believe in that mm. I really appreciate that you mentioned that I mean being called out as naive as someone who's defending human rights someone who's mm. defending you know peace and security um yeah I really appreciate that because that's something mm. that I've felt recently um so yeah, yeah it's uh it's the hypocrisy it really becomes clear when we talk about it you know mm who is actually being naive here. <laughs> and it's a very, I mean, this is why I was such a fan of, of the Swedish initiative to use a feminist foreign policy, because I think it's so needed to dismantle those ideas that somehow weapon war are rational um, and kind of realist, whereas negotiations, collaboration, 
compromises is somehow weak and naive. And when you look at, I mean, even a country like, um, you know, war is not a very good way of solving issues. I mean, look at Russia. It's not really like they're, they're nailing this and like they are like, woohoo, we're doing great. Like they are not doing great. Um, the US did not do great in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, and this is the biggest military power in the world uh, against an extremely poor, um, not a very big military power, Afghanistan, yet they are not able to manage, right? Like it's it's yeah. not solving the problems. And mm. somehow it is seen as naive to talk about, well, maybe we should like really push for funding women's rights organizations, uh, democracy mm. efforts, work on the development side. And that would have been a lot better for Afghan people. Yeah. Um, but somehow that is seen as naive, even though we have it like in science or research evidence that that is actually a better way to deal with these things. Mm. And that creates more safer and secure societies. We know that societies with a lot of weapons has much more gun violence, mm. whereas societies without weapons have much less gun violence. Yeah. And yet somehow it is rational and like smart to have a lot of weapons. Like it's completely stupid, right? And we have to dare to like dismantle that and say, actually you're the naive and unrealistic. I mean, I find mm. even in nuclear weapons, this idea that forever we will have this weapon and nothing will ever go wrong. No bad actor will ever make a mistake. Like it is so naive and irresponsible. And they're living in a pretend world where they just basically their strategy is just, we hope. We hope that it will all work out fine. I mean, I literally had like a former deputy, deputy secretary general of NATO when I asked him about accidents with nuclear weapons. If there's going to be a mistake or an accident, then what? And he was like, well, I don't think that will happen. I'm like, we're talking about the end of the world. You thinking that it's not going to happen? It's not good enough. Like, stop being, again, so naive, so like reckless. Mm. Um, it's time for the, the real realists to step in now. Yeah. Thank you for being one, Beatrice. Thank you so much for, you know, leading this campaign and, you know, um, sharing your story with us, inspiring us to, to join your efforts and all of the other amazing activists and advocates and leaders across the world who are working towards, um, you know, a ban on nuclear weapons. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hey Changemaker with me, Julia Wicklander. It's been an honor to have you along with me learning and growing as a changemaker. If you know of anyone who would appreciate to join us on this journey, please share this episode with them. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, please rate and review this podcast. That way more people can find it. Let's build solidarity to create ripple effects of positive change around the world. Remember, you are powerful, you're a change maker.